This is Unsung History, the podcast where we discuss people and events in American history that haven't always received a lot of attention. I'm your host, Kelly Therese Pollack. I'll start each episode with a brief introduction to the topic and then talk to someone who knows a lot more than I do. Be sure to subscribe to Unsung History on your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. And please, Tell your friends, family, neighbors, colleagues, maybe even strangers to listen to. Today's episode is about prohibition. When you think of prohibition in the United States, you probably think of the time between when the 18th Amendment went into effect on January 17, 1920, and its repeal by the 21st Amendment on December 5, 1933. But prohibition has a much longer history in the U.S. The temperance movement stretches back at least to 1784, when Benjamin Rush published An Inquiry into the Effects of Ardent Spirits Upon the Human Body and Mind, in which he stated, Thus, we see poverty and misery, crimes and infamy, diseases and death, are all the natural and usual consequences of the intemperate use of ardent spirits. Temperance societies and journals popped up around the country, and by the late 1830s, many of the organizations were calling for full prohibition of alcohol. Temperance activist Neil Dow was born into a Quaker family in Portland, Maine, in 1804, and he always believed that alcohol was problematic. He said of the liquor trade, it makes ruthless war upon the people. It blasts and destroys their homes as with pestilence and fire. It kills savagely, cruelly, more than a hundred thousand of them every year, robbing them first and driving wives and children to ruin and despair. In 1850, Dow was elected the president of the Maine Temperance Union, and a year later, he was elected to be mayor of Portland. Dow pushed the Maine state legislature to enact prohibition, and on June 2, 1851, he got his way when Maine became the first state to outlaw alcohol. With a law that stated that the sale of all alcoholic beverages except for, quote, medicinal, mechanical, or manufacturing purposes, unquote, was prohibited. Other states quickly followed and by 1855, 12 other states had enacted similar laws. The New York State Legislature passed a prohibition statute after a similar bill had been vetoed by the previous governor. The law was set to go into effect on July 4, 1855, usually the wettest day of the year. A coalition of anti-prohibitionists, including liquor dealers, brewers, and bar owners, joined together to condemn prohibition and to campaign for its repeal. The PR campaign worked, at least in some places. And July 4, 1855, was as wet as usual in Manhattan and elsewhere. In the places in New York State where prohibition was enforced, such as in Brooklyn and in Buffalo, the anti-prohibitionists sold liquor anyway, hoping to be arrested peacefully so they could bring a case to court. The New York Court of Appeals heard two such cases and declared the Prohibition Statute unconstitutional. 
Judge George F. Comstock, who curiously was a member of the prohibitionist Know-Nothing Party, said that alcohol was a type of property, and since the state constitution says that, quote, no persons shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, unquote, the state legislature couldn't reduce the value of liquor by making it illegal. The Indiana Prohibition Law was similarly struck down by a state Supreme Court ruling, although another prohibition law was passed a couple of years later. Even in Maine, where the Maine laws started, prohibition was unpopular among some groups of people, including the working class and immigrants. On June 2, 1855, things turned violent in Portland. Anti-prohibitionists stormed the Portland City Hall in search of a rumored liquor stash in the basement. According to reports, Mayor Dow ordered the crowd to be fired upon, and one person was killed. Seven more were wounded. The incident, which became known as the Portland Rum Riot, led to the repeal of the Maine Law in 1856. Prohibitionists kept trying in Maine, and eventually in 1885, Prohibition was written into the state constitution, where it stayed in effect until the repeal of National Prohibition in 1933. Although the 21st Amendment repealed the nationwide prohibition, the second part of the amendment read, The transportation or importation into any state, territory, or possession of the United States for delivery or use therein of intoxicating liquors in violation of the laws thereof, is hereby prohibited. A statewide law, such as Maine's, could still be enacted. The last dry state was Mississippi, which finally legalized alcohol in 1966. There are still many dry towns and counties throughout the country. To learn more about the Maine liquor law and the anti-prohibitionist reaction to early attempts at prohibition, I'm speaking now with Kyle Volk, Associate Professor and Chair of the Department of History at the University of Montana, and author of Moral Minorities and the Making of American Democracy, which discusses these early attempts. So, hi, Kyle. It's great to talk to you again. It's been a long time since uh, since we've seen each other. It's great to see you. Thanks, uh, thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Yeah, so I, I want to jump into this, talk about uh, moral minorities, and then talk about sort of the, the 1840s and 50s. But I wonder if we could start with kind of a, a definition, what you mean by moral minorities and, you know, sort of minority rights has this really uh, has an implication in the, the modern world that that isn't exactly what we're talking about here. Yeah, no, not 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 always. Right. Um so, I mean, when I started the project, I was really asking a question about when did ordinary groups of, of people start to think of themselves as minorities or minority groups? And in the, the late 18th century, and kind of throughout political theory, the minorities that were always worried about the tyranny of the majority were the elites, the wealthy people, the rich. Um, and in the U.S. case, that eventually became the slaveholders who were very rich and very powerful. But I, I was interested based on some research I had done, and, and again, looking at when ordinary people started to think of themselves as minorities. So I guess my definition is, is somewhat historical because I'm a historian. So I was looking for people at the time in the mid-19th century who were self-conceiving as minorities. 
And I call them moral minorities in the book. That's something they wouldn't have said. That's something I said, something I came up with um, as a way to, to group different groups of people who are claiming minority status and found themselves in particular in minority status because they were up against a moral kind of issue that was framed in majoritarian terms. So with the alcohol issue, um, by the 1840s, temperance reformers started arguing that the majority of Americans uh, were opposed to you know, the sale of alcohol. And because we're in a democracy and majority rules, therefore, um, alcohol should be severely restricted or banned or, or what have you. And groups of people like liquor dealers, German immigrants and whatnot started to see themselves as a minority. And I call them a moral minority because they were on the, the losing side um, of, of a major moral question of the day. Yeah, I, I love that you put uh, liquor dealers as sort of the, the moral minority in this. It's such a, an interesting juxtaposition. So I, you know, I, I sat down with my kids at dinner one night and I said, in a democracy, should the majority always rule? And they said, yeah. And I said, okay, so what about the rights of slaves? And they said, oh, no, no, no. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Minorities should have rights, and but it it pushes it so much further when you think, do we have the right to sell alcohol? Do we, you know, that that this is, uh, it's very different, at least in our you know sort of modern conception, than thinking about do ethnic and religious and national minorities have rights? Uh, so I'm glad that you put the the liquor question in. Do, was it an actual majority that was against alcohol, or is this just sort of a a, a rhetoric device that they were using that that it was the majority that that opposed this? So it's definitely a rhetorical device. I mean, this is a weaponized language that temperance reformers and prohibitionists were using. However, um, what's interesting is that by the 1840s, um, different states started passing laws to initiate local uh, prohibition by referendum. And, uh, you know, in lots of towns, I think over 70% of towns in New York, the state of New York in 1846, voted themselves dry, meaning majorities of people went to the polls and voted themselves dry. Now we're talking about only male voters in most states, white voters, lots of people are disfranchised at this time. Um, but if you had added, you know, the, the women to the vote at the time, it, it would have been even stronger majorities, likely. So, I mean, there's evidence that majorities of people in certain locales and then in certain states um, did support not necessarily the ban on alcohol, but the ban on the retail sale of alcohol. So to, to put this in context for people. They were drinking a lot back then. So um, oh Americans were, <laughs> this isn't just like uh, people were having a beer every once in a while. There was a lot of alcohol flowing. Can you, can you sort of tell us a little bit about what, oh, what sure. that looked like at the time? I, mean, this is the, I, I teach a course on the history of alcohol uh, here at the University of Montana. And, you know, one of the segments of the course is, is built on this famous book by Bill Rohrbach, who is a historian at University of Washington. And he called the book, The Alcoholic Republic. And. <laughs> point was that in the early republic from, say, uh, the revolution to the 1840s, Americans were drinking like fish, right? They were drinking like crazy, uh, twice as much as we drink per capita today. So if we drank two gallons of pure alcohol per person, um, you know, each year, Americans in 1825, the peak of the, the whiskey kind of explosion in the United States, Americans were drinking at least per 
for on average uh, four gallons per person. So, I mean, the temperance reformers were, you know, religiously um, inspired, no doubt. The Second Great Awakening was going on at the time, but they were reacting to what was, I think, a very real social problem, which is Americans were drinking uh, high octane alcohol, whiskey, most prominently uh, in great amounts. And what what sorts of things was that leading to? I mean, it wasn't just that they were drinking a lot, but but sometimes that drink was causing real problems for people. Oh, sure. I mean, this is this is a, a time of uh, God, vast change in American society. People are are moving constantly. Cities are growing. I think the rates of urbanization in the early nineteenth century were higher than any other point um, in in American history. Um, workers are starting to kind of work as wage workers. They're living apart from families. So all kinds of shenanigans ensued. Crime was uh, on the rise in in various places. Uh, Murder was on the rise, you know, kind of significant crime. And temperance reformers linked all of the kind of social ills that were going on in society to drink. Whether rightfully or wrongfully, you know, is is a a real question. But nonetheless, they saw social ills, poverty, crime, vice, whatever, um, prostitution, you name it. These things were attributed to to drinking too much. And there's also a a sort of nationality and immigration kind of aspect to this too, right? Like who are the people who are producing and selling the alcohol in large part? Yeah, yeah, that's that's a real part of the story. And, and, it, and it changes over time, but by the 1840s and 1850s, when the prohibitionist kind of uh, perspective really starts to take hold in the temperance movement, they're definitely reacting to the influx of Irish and German immigrants, uh, Irish who are well known for drinking whiskey and Germans who are bringing, bringing a different culture of beer drinking but nonetheless seen as a, as a hard drinking people. It's no accident that prohibition laws first go into effect when Irish and German immigration is exploding in the U.S. I think what you do so well in the book is look at not just sort of who are these groups of moral minorities, but what are the tactics that they're using? What are the tactics that they develop throughout the 19th century that really is going to be important later in the fights in the 20th century and continuing into the 21st century? So what are some of those tactics? What are the ways that they are figuring out that they can push back against the will of the quote unquote majority in in putting these laws into place to restrict them? Yeah, I'm glad you asked, because I think that's that's a, a fun part for me of what I was doing. I call this kind of the origins of minority rights politics, which is to say kind of sets of political actions and behaviors that so-called minority groups um, kind of develop and embrace in order to lobby their cause. So they were doing all sorts of things um, and stuff that seems really modern, at least to me, and very familiar uh, types of behavior. They're petitioning legislatures. Most importantly, they're intentionally breaking the law uh, in acts of civil disobedience. Uh, They go to court, they challenge regulations, the legality of them, the constitutionality of them. Um, They form associations, which is to say, you know, in the case of the alcohol question, German and Irish immigrants who weren't necessarily the best of friends outside of the bar, you know, get together in groups and they form liquor dealer associations. And those groups kind of spearhead resistance and they raise money to, to fund their legal fights in, in courts. These are the types of things that you know, look very much like what civil liberties and civil rights activists would, would embrace in the late 19th and throughout the 20th century. 
Yeah, I think one of the things that was most striking to me was this idea of these organizations raising funds for the legal defense. Uh, so that's certainly something you see in the 20th century in the civil rights movement uh, with the NAACP legal fund, you know, but can you talk some about what that looked like in the 19th century? And of course, it's not exactly the same. So when you're talking about Black people in New York fighting segregation uh, in public transportation, they've got a lot less money, but they're still trying to, to raise the money versus what that looks like for these liquor dealers and the associations that they form. But it's a, a similar kind of tactic. It is. It is. And, and that's why I've you know, tried to, to juxtapose the, these di- very, very different groups who are fighting very different sources of perceived uh, to them perceived oppression. But I'll just focus on the, the the liquor dealers. I mean, they form these organizations, liquor dealer organizations, societies. Um, they charge dues. So if you want to be a member of the society, you have to pay to, to become a member. At some point, some of the liquor dealer associations, when they're really up against um, prohibition laws, like in New York in 1855, the first uh, New York State prohibition law goes into effect. All of a sudden, the liquor dealing associations that were kind of quasi popular are flooded with interest. People uh, in the alcohol industry all of a sudden want to join. They pay their money. And some of these groups institute kind of a tax, if you will, on beer sold for, for every kind of keg of beer that was sold in a brewery or at a, um, a place where they're, they're serving drink these liquor dealer groups would collect a certain amount of money and then everyone had a kind of vested interest in the association um, and everyone got behind people who were arrested and supported them through whatever other legal suits might might ensue. It was impossible for me as a person who looks at 21st century politics not to draw connections to the National Rifle Association and to say what these, you know, it, it, it's a moral minority, but it's it's really much the industry that's that's supporting a lot of this uh, financially, and that's the same thing that we see with the NRA. Do you, I mean, do you see that that through line? Is would it be fair to compare those, or you know, what are what are the things that sort of make this situation different? Well. I think I think it's fair to compare them. And I think there's some through lines. I think we need to be careful about drawing too many through lines in history. But, you know, the tactics that we were just focusing on, those have become stock and trade for groups across the political spectrum. I mean, this is what advocacy groups, minority groups, rights groups, that's what they do to defend themselves and and advocate for their, their, their interests. And some of those are, you know, personal interests. Some of them are cultural interests, some are, you know, economic interests, um, and a lot of times those different types of interests overlap. You know, I don't know how they overlap in the NRA case. I know they do. There's been great scholarship about kind of the culture of masculinity surrounding mm-hmm. gun ownership. And that's tied to the um, the gun producers, the businesses who make guns. We could, we could talk about that. But what I know more about is, is the alcohol case where it's it's absolutely you know, liquor dealers, people with vested economic interests who are, are leading the charge against prohibition laws. There's no doubt about that. But I think behind them are thousands of Americans, lots of them immigrants, like German immigrants, have deeply held cultural values about the place of beer um, and the importance of beer halls, for example, as gathering spaces for not just men, but for women and children, a place a family would go on a Sunday afternoon to have a drink, have some food, see some entertainment. I mean, this is life for them. This is the culture. And to them, 
prohibition was assault, an assault uh, on that culture as much as it was an assault on the businesses and the kind of basic kind of right to drink. I think there's so much that was bound up uh, into both of those things. So uh, similarly, you talk about uh, Sabbath laws. And so these are these these Sunday laws where uh, there's a whole lot that's prohibited on Sundays and that's, you know, enforced more or less over various times. But that's such an interesting case because of the religious minorities within America who celebrate the Sabbath on a different day on Saturday instead of Sunday. Uh, but it it seems that that has uh, sort of really uh, the the similarities there about uh, the way that you celebrate, the way that you live your life, the the sorts of things we're protecting if we're protecting minority rights about differences of uh, of worship, of life in the home, of you know what all that should look like. Um, but for people who don't know a whole lot about Sunday laws and what that looked like, can you can you talk a little bit about those cases and and what that meant and when they would come up? I love this question too, because this is where the, the project really got started. Back when I was an undergraduate, I researched the history of Sunday legislation from the colonial time until uh, you know, the late 20th century. And I, I, it was just a kind of general kind of church and state kind of interest that I had. How is it that in this nation that, you know, is devoted to the separation of church and state, we have all these Sunday laws that are still active, you know, that stores are forced to close, especially alcohol stores uh, can't stay open in lots of places throughout the country. When I was an undergraduate, I, I went to school in Boston. And whenever we needed alcohol on Sunday, people would drive to New Hampshire. <laughs> to kind of get to get alcohol and bring it back and you know throw whatnot um and that fascinated me because i was like wow think about all the the social behavior that's being dictated by this one seemingly small regulation then i started thinking about like, it's not small this is one seventh of our life which is regulated by a specific um area of law and you know if you look at sunday laws in the 20th century they're, they're enormous right they're long lists of kind of things that you can't do and then a long list of exceptions and special licenses and permits that you have to get if you're a bowling alley and you want to stay open on a sunday anyway i was i was thinking about this in the early 1960s there was a, a legal case that went all the way to the united states supreme court and it was a constitutional kind of First Amendment challenge to Sunday legislation. Jewish litigants, unsurprising, they celebrate the Sabbath on Saturday, not Sunday, so on and so forth. And they go to the Supreme Court. They make that argument, you know, that these laws are unconstitutional. And this is the time when the Supreme Court is invalidating prayer in school and posting the Ten Commandments on the courthouse wall. Well, they they upheld the Sunday law. And I was like, wow, that's so <laughs> But what was also fascinating and what I came back later to in the in the dissertation and then book project is that in the 1840s and 1850s, um, Jewish Americans, Seventh-day Baptists, free thinkers, German immigrants were making the, pretty much the same arguments and taking the, the same type of action um, that those Jewish litigants took in 1960, except they were doing it in 1845. And I was like, wow, what's going on here? And they were using the language of majority tyranny and minority rights. And this is what opened the, the door to me, that there were groups of people who were starting to think of themselves as, as minorities. In this case, it was very much a religious minority, a cultural minority. 
And then later on, it gets a little bit more complicated because alcohol takes a, a prominent role in the fight. And again, you have immigrants um, battling against Sunday legislation. But Sunday laws have just this long history in the United States. We still have them in Missoula, Montana, to some extent today. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think I spent so much of my life not even realizing it was weird that there were Sunday laws. Uh, I went to college at Northwestern in Evanston, Illinois, and there are all sorts all sorts of laws still on the books in uh, Evanston. Evanston was dry for you know decades in the 20th century. And yeah, the idea that we still, you, you talk in the book about um, mail delivery on Sundays, and, and we still don't have mail delivery <laughs> on Sundays, uh, you know, just to some extent. That, that these things still exist, that it's it's still sort of just accepted as, well, we're a, a majority Christian country and and that that we're not pushing back on those. Uh, I mean, of course, the, the difference now is that there are plenty of things you can do on Sundays. You can go to a movie on Sundays. You can go shop at Target on Sundays. Like those things are, are all accepted and there are just small bits that are, are like alcohol that are still restricted. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And it's fascinating how not everyone, but lots of those exceptions became a battle. You know, could the German beer hall be open on Sunday? Could the um, could the tavern, could the museum, could the library? Can we hold the 1876 Centennial uh, Exposition in Philadelphia? Can that be open? Can the uh, Columbian Exposition in 1893, can that be open on Sunday? Can we have baseball games on Sunday? Every one of these things was a fight, a struggle. And I think part of what I'm trying to say uh, in, in my book is that these types of struggles, which are often framed in these majoritarian minority rights kind of ways, that's democracy happening, right? These are the things Americans have battled over. They battled over lots of things, no doubt. But these are some pretty powerful motors of, of our political system have been for, for over two centuries. Yeah. So I don't want to uh, forget to talk about uh, this case of Elizabeth Jennings and Sarah Adams in New York City. So this is not alcohol. This is not Sabbath laws. This is uh, an attempt to integrate public transportation or semi-public transportation in New York City. And this is, you know, 100 years before Rosa Parks. So we think of Rosa Parks, you know, sitting in a, you know, a, a section of the bus she wasn't supposed to sit in as, you know, sort of the beginning of this. And of course, it's nowhere near the beginning. Uh, so can you talk about what uh, what's going on there? This is, of course, a very different kind of uh, minority. These are, is an actual statistical minority, um, free black people. Racialized in, yeah. yeah. In in the north, and you know, and a very small minority at that, but is is looking at similar tactics, is thinking about similar things, and the way that they can fight back. And we'll have you know, we'll continue, of course, for a hundred. I mean, really, still to today, but you know, certainly for the next hundred years after that, that they're continuing to fight these battles. There's so much to say. <laughs> I think. I think first you know, that there was a free black population, you know, that was politically active in the North before the civil war, I think is one thing we should just put on the table, right? That some people just don't, don't know about and don't realize, but there, there indeed was a, a very politically active um, black politics uh, or black, black political movement that, that were engaged in lots of different things before the civil war. Um, they were fighting against proposals for colonization. They were fighting for citizenship rights. They were fighting against slavery. They were, you know, at the forefront of the abolitionist movement. But they were also fighting for civil rights of Black Northerners. 
they use the, that kind of language to, to make sense of what they were doing. So in one chapter, I talk about African-Americans battling for school integration and some of the earliest fights against school segregation happened in the North Massachusetts, um, particularly in Nantucket before uh, the Civil War in the 1840s. But then there was this other thing, and that's you know tied to the explosion of, as you suggest, mass transit, right? The idea that there are, are railroads and streetcars um, and big questions you know, followed that new technology. And the questions were, how were these new public spaces, the inside of streetcars, the inside of rail, railroad cars, how are they going to be ordered? Who's going to be able to come in and sit, stand? Who's going to have to sit on the outside? So on and so forth. So that became a major question in a very racially divided American North. Lots of people, I think, have this myth that the American North, if there were Black people there, were kind of free and equal. And it was the South where there was slavery and, and racial oppression. Um, no, um, the American North was filled, teeming with, with racial prejudice, and, and that dictated, ended up dictating a lot of how public transit was structured. So African-Americans you know, in stagecoaches had to sit next to the driver. They weren't allowed in the stagecoach quite often. Um, in railroad cars, there were separate cars that were second-class at best accommodations where Black men and women were, were sent. And in streetcars, in New York City, the fight that you're you're alluding to in your question about Elizabeth Jennings, there were cars that said colored allowed, right? Meaning all the other cars were for white people only. And then there were a certain subset of cars that were allowed for, for black folks. So yeah, this was this was a, a practice that was on the rise uh, in the 1850s. And in New York City, what I focused on in one of my chapters is a major struggle. That happened over a series of years, almost a decade of time, uh, where African-Americans joined together, men and women. They formed an association, the Legal Rights Association, which was one of my favorite finds in my research. They, they organized, they petitioned, they held balls to raise money. Um, they did all sorts of things. And eventually, you know, the heart of their, their movement was civil disobedience. They went like Rosa Parks would later, they went into the spaces of travel. They went into the streetcars. And when conductors said, you got to get out, you're black. They said, no, we're going to stay. And eventually they got thrown out and they'd be sometimes arrested or they'd file civil suits for damages against the people uh, who had thrown them out, the conductors or the streetcar companies. These were as you suggested, public-private kind of ways of managing public transit at that time. So that became another type of legal strategy. And it put a lot of pressure on the companies, uh, the streetcar companies in the realm of public opinion. And as I talk about, by the time of the Civil War, when African-Americans are enlisted to fight for the union cause and dying for the union and the end of slavery and all of that, the last streetcar company in New York gives up uh, racial segregation because I suggest of the continued pressure of the African-Americans allied behind the Legal Rights Association. There's such an interesting class thing going on here, too, that uh, that this lack of uh, access to transportation keeps people, lower class people, so black, lower class people, lower class, because they they can't in some ways move in society the same way that white people can. They can't even necessarily get to jobs they need to get to. 
But the way that they can fight back the civil disobedience is not the sort of lower classes. It's people like Elizabeth Jennings, who are are more sort of middle class, have a little bit more access to resource and education. And, you know, so I but, you know, it's just such a, a fascinating thing to, you know, I, I hadn't thought about that piece of not being able to move in society in the same way, but it's so crucial to what's going on. It is crucial. Um, And I think it's also crucial to the minority rights politics that I described, which is to say there was civil disobedience and lots of incidents that could have generated a court case. But quite often, the Legal Rights Association chose who they thought would be the best litigant. And that litigant was often the most respected African-American person who had been involved in an altercation. So James Pennington who I write about in, in, in the book. He was a, a religious leader. He actually earned a, his doctorate from a university in Europe. He had traveled abroad for with the abolitionist cause, whatnot. He was a, a respected member of the community and I think a middle-class black man. And it was no accident that the association chose him as the person to put up um, in a legal suit you know, that would go to uh, the New York Supreme Court. Well, and then bringing that back then to the the alcohol fights, it's a similar kind of thing, right? It's a don't put up a fight when they arrest you, you know, like we're going to make sort of model model cases here for who should be be the people that we are pointing to, to say, you know, these are are well-respected and well-behaved people. They're just trying to make a living. Totally. Yeah. We talk about the politics of respectability and like middle-class bourgeois culture. I mean, kind of all the time it's become a cliche in, in historical studies, but in these types of minority rights politics that I describe, those things are intertwined, right? You got to look the part. You have to be respectable. You got to make your opponent, you know, look like the bad person. So the Irish conductor who was nasty and threw you off the train, he's the bad person because you sat there nicely dressed and, you know, didn't put up a fight, just were dragged off. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating. And uh, such clear, uh, clear parallels to then the the 20th century and what happens. So I guess that's sort of my, my final question is, you know, why, why is, why is it that we don't know as much about the 19th century? And, you know, it seems like all these things, at least from a sort of popular perception that all these things sort of just start in 1950, 1960, that, you know, uh, this is clearly a, a long, long movement that continues to evolve. And, but why is it that the sort of view of history is that, uh, that we ignore a lot of what then happened in the 19th century? That's a good question. Um, I'm not sure I'm capable of, of tech <laughs> total, but um, my, my mentor, uh, when I was a graduate student, used to say that all of the major important struggles in the modern era happened in the 19th century, that everything that happened in the 20th century was just kind of an echo and a continuation of major uh, questions, moral, ethical, and otherwise, that developed in the 19th century. So I obviously agree with that perspective. Um, but I think that, you know, the research shows that. Um, and that's not to say things didn't change in minority rights politics or the African-American freedom struggle or prohibition politics from the 1850s to the 1920s or the 1960s. Certainly not. Um, but I, I think there, there's a lot to be said about kind of just how modern democracy was already forming these important roots, um, you know, in the 1830s, 40s, and 50s. Why we don't know about it? I'm not sure. I mean, I think, you know, I, I need to credit the, the, the many scholars who came before me, I mean, who wrote pieces of this. Mm-hmm. I mean, other scholars who noted 
that African Americans were battling for for civil rights. Um, they, they, you know, Leon Litwack, famous book North of Slavery, you know, that was published in the early 1960s, put these kind of struggles on the map. They weren't the focus of his research, so we didn't know as much as we needed to know. And he left me space to play, and that was was great. You know, again, I think for me, showing the the politics of alcohol the politics of Sunday law and religion and race and racial prejudice, kind of putting them all together was able to reveal something new. And that's not just one particular group fighting a fight, fighting for civil rights or civil liberties, but an entire culture kind of working out what um, the place of minority rights would be within American democracy. And we haven't worked it out. I mean, that that's the other part of the, the story here. This is an ongoing struggle. You know, where the question you asked your kids at dinner, um, it's a question we're still all asking. And I think we will continue to ask because it's fundamental to democracy. And we're asking right now in the case of vaccine mandates and mask mandates, you know, I mean, it's it's certainly coming up. Who is the majority? Who is the minority? What rights does the other side have? And, you know, I, yeah, it's uh, reading your book has really made me sort of think about those questions, uh, you know, I, of course, am pro-vaccine and pro-mask and all of that, but it has made me really think about what are, uh, what are the rights of the minority? What are the rights of people who don't agree with me? And, you know, how do we balance those rights against my rights to health? And, you know, all of those, I think it's, it's obviously super complicated, but it, it it's still going on. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And you're, you're making me think of, of the other thing um, that I think is important about, you know, these struggles that I, that I wrote about, which is it's not that we're taking sides that the majority should rule or the minority has rights. You know, it's, it's the, the ongoing struggle, the tension, but it's also the idea that for the minority groups that I wrote about, their struggle was in court, it was in law, but it was ultimately in public opinion. Right. And to convince the masses that their rights as a minority deserved respect. Um, and sometimes they won, sometimes they lost, sometimes that took decades, if not centuries. Right. But that's that's the struggle. Um, and it's the same thing, I think, with, you know, anti-vaxxers or anti-maskers. They can raise the flag of they're an oppressed minority, but it's up to them to say to convince the rest of us that they're they're right and that they deserve to you know not be vaccinated or, or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes that that case is harder to make than others. Yeah. Is there anything else that you wanted to make sure we talk about? I feel good. Uh, this is really fun. It's been a couple of years since I, I talked to someone about my book. Um, so I, I really appreciate the opportunity to do so. Thank you so much. Yeah. And how can people go get the book? The book was published by Oxford University Press. You can find it on their page. It's available uh, on, you know, Amazon.com and all the usual outlets. So have at it. All right. Excellent. Well, Kyle, thank you so much for joining me. This was really fun. And uh, I, I think a lot about ethics and things anyway, and it's certainly something we talk to our kids a lot about, but uh, it was fun to have sort of this new spin on it to, to introduce to them. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Unsung History. You can find the sources used for this episode at unsunghistorypodcast.com. To the best of our knowledge, all audio and images used by Unsung History are in the public domain or are used with permission. You can find us on Twitter or Instagram at unsung underscore underscore history or on Facebook at Unsung History Podcast. To contact us with questions or episode suggestions, please email kelly at unsunghistorypodcast.com. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review and tell your friends. MSW Media.